Lee Summit, great to see you. Blue Springs, I'm so glad you're there. All of you worshiping and watching online, we are praying for a weekend of revival. Revival, a move of God. Now, some of you may not even know what that means. Revival's kind of a churchy word. If you weren't raised in church, you might not know for sure what that looks like or what that means. And it can mean a lot of things in your mind's eye. But biblically, what is revival? Revival is when the Holy Spirit of God blows life upon a body that has died. And the church needs more than just another Sunday meeting. The church needs more than just another reformation. The church needs a resuscitation. The church needs a resurrection. Revival is a baptism upon the hungry. Revival is a baptism upon the holy. Revival is a baptism on the people of God when they get desperate for a work and a move of the Spirit of God. And that's what we're praying for, Ezekiel 22 this evening, Ezekiel chapter 22. As we get rolling, I thought about a quote I read years and years ago by Lord Thomas McAuley. It was on the outset of the U.S. Civil War. He'd befriended a U.S. diplomat. They were exchanging letters about the merits of the British monarchy versus American democracy. And he wrote these words in a letter dated May the 23rd, 1857. Your constitution is all sail and no anchor. As I said before, when a society has entered on this downward progress, either civilization or liberty must perish. Either some Caesar or Napoleon will seize the reins of government with a strong hand, or your republic will be as fearfully plundered and laid waste by the barbarians in the 20th century as the Roman Empire was in the 5th, with this difference, that the Huns and Vandals who ravaged the Roman Empire came from without, and that your Huns and Vandals will have been engendered within your country by your own institutions. Leave it to a historian to see into the future. How prophetic. Because history does repeat itself. And we are watching, I'm convinced, the destruction of a nation. I'm not a doomsday prophet. If you know me well, I'm really not the alarmist. I'm the eternal optimist. But I have to say, what I'm watching, what we've been watching, is nothing less than the decline of civilization, all-out decay. This is how nations eventually collapse from within. And while the world in this election season is all about right or all about left, you need to know that God is all about up and down. God does not think in terms of left or right because they're not going to save us. But he does think in terms of up and down. You're either drawing near to God or further from God. And tonight, Ezekiel in chapter 22 is going to give us in some way an autopsy of a nation that once was alive but had collapsed and died. I've told you, if you want to see into the future, just peer into the past. The parallels between modern America and ancient Israel are striking. Now remember, America is not a theocracy like ancient Israel. We're not in a covenant relationship with God as a nation like ancient Israel. But the principles and the parallels are still very much the same. Here was ancient Israel. God redeemed them from tyranny and brought them out of captivity. They went on this journey to a land that would flow with milk and honey. It was a place of beauty and bounty. It was fruitful. It was beautiful. But here is a people that had wandered away from God. And here we are in America the beautiful, America the bountiful, and a people that is deeply, deeply falling from God. And I want you to see the life cycle of nations. Here's what happened in ancient Israel. Here's what is happening today in this nation, in our generation. It begins with personal liberty that eventually gives way to spiritual apathy. Spiritual apathy gives way to re religious apostasy. That gives way to moral anarchy. And that eventually leads to national captivity. And I want you to see we are on that cycle, that life cycle of nations. From personal liberty to spiritual apathy. What is apathy? Apathy. 
is when you just don't care about the truth. And from apathy, it goes to apostasy. That's a turning from truth. And from apostasy, it goes to anarchy. Now there is no truth, and it's not long that anarchy eventually brings a place of captivity. And I'm suggesting tonight that we are somewhere on this continuum, and I'm suggesting tonight we're right here at moral anarchy where it's an anything-goes mentality. And if there's a God in heaven, and I'm convinced he is, then we can see into the future by peering into the past. God is patient and long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish and that all should come to repent in 2 Peter 3 and verse 9. He's full of mercy. He's full of grace. It was 350 years from the time that Solomon consecrated the temple in Jerusalem to ultimately being led away captivity by the Babylonians for 300 150 years, they were gradually falling away deeper and deeper into idolatry before God finally dropped the gavel and let them go away into captivity. But I'm telling you tonight that while God is full of mercy, we are a nation in trouble. We are a people in trouble. And some of us tonight are in trouble. Romans 6.23 is a universal truth. No one can escape it. It's for all men and for all women. It says these words, the wages of sin is death. Jesus comes to bring life. Sin comes to bring death. The wages of sin is death. Some of us tonight are living in sin and we are reaping a whirlwind. Jesus comes to give life, but the wages of sin is death. Death is always the result of sin. It's death to relationships, death to friendships, death to finances, death to families, death to marriages. Tonight, we need revival in our lives before God can bring revival to our land. Now, it's not all doom and gloom, I'm going to tell you, because God is a God of hope. He never leaves us without hope. Nothing is ever hopeless, and here he gives us our hope. We're going to work backwards. We're working to verse 30. I want to just give you verse 30, because here's where we're working to. He says in Ezekiel 22 and verse 30, So I sought for a man or a woman among them who would make a wall and stand in the gap before me on behalf of the land that I should not destroy it, but I found no one. Now, Ezekiel is the Hebrew prophet. He is prophesying from Babylonian captivity. They've already gone into captivity because of their sin and idolatry. And now God is giving Ezekiel this prophecy, looking back at what happened. It's an autopsy, remember, of a nation that had collapsed and died from within. A nation that may have been conquered from without, but the real erosion took place from within. And so he's giving him an autopsy. What went wrong in Israel? And I want you to see that tonight he found no one eventually. The righteous were all gone. He says, I sought for a man among them that would make a wall and stand in the gap before me on behalf of the land that I should not destroy it, but I found no one. And he lowered the gavel. And in some way, that's what we are. As the body of Christ, we are metaphorically a wall. And you understand what God is teaching in Ezekiel 22 and verse 30. Metaphorically, it is the people of God in any land that is the wall of defense upon that land. And when he says, I want you to make up a wall, each of our lives is another brick in the wall. And if you're an 80s kid, you're thinking about the song I'm thinking of right now. Okay, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm just that carnal, okay? All we are is just a... Okay, you've heard it too. Okay, there it is. <laughs> That's what we are. In fact, this is the theology in that song, seriously. All right, 1 Peter chapter 1 calls us living stones. God is using not dead stones, but living stones. And in some way, each of our lives is a brick in that wall of protection upon a nation. A wall in ancient days was fortification against an enemy. Unfortunately, modern man builds walls where there shouldn't be walls and tears down walls where there ought to be walls. 
and our walls of defenses spiritually have been torn down. There's a breach in the wall. And that is what God is now saying. He wants us to stand in the gap. In the ancient days, wherever you had a breach in the wall, men and women would stand there against an advancing army and they literally became a living wall. They were standing in the gap of the wall, protecting the city and the citizens on the inside. And God is saying even now that I'm looking for some men and women who will stand in the gap. The walls of our defenses spiritually in our society have fallen. The walls have fallen. And he wants us to understand that each of us are to stand together and make up a wall, a wall of protection upon this nation, a wall of intercession upon this nation. And I sought for a man or a woman among them that would make up a wall and stand in the gap before me for the land, that I should not destroy it, but I found none. You see, in ancient Israel, it finally got so bad that he found none. No one. Now, can I tell you why God hadn't dropped the gavel on our nation or our generation? Because he finds someone. He finds a lot of someones. If you want to be one of those someones, we just raise your hand. I want you to see all those living bricks. We're all here tonight to make intercession. We are part of that metaphorical wall of protection for our generation as we pray for awakening and revival and a move of God upon this nation. I want you to see in this autopsy what went wrong. And I'm going to show you a list of sins that Israel had committed again and again, generation after generation. And I will promise we could be talking about modern America. We could be talking about some of our lives personally as we talk about this ancient people and the city of Jerusalem. First of all, they were a bloody society. In this autopsy, God tells Ezekiel, I want you to start out pointing out the sin. They were a bloody society, a violent society. Ezekiel 22 and verse 1, moreover, the word of the Lord came to me saying, now son of man, will you judge, will you judge the bloody city? Yes, show her all her abominations. Now we're talking about Jerusalem. Over and over in scripture, Jerusalem is called the holy city. But now she's not called the holy city. She's called a bloody city. Then say, thus says the Lord God, the city sheds blood in her own midst that her time may come and she makes idols within herself to defile herself. This was a bloody, bloody place, a bloody, bloody city. It had become violent. And I want you to see that our nation is a bloody nation. We're a bloody generation, a violent nation for supposedly a Christian civilization. Since 2015, there's a 28% increase of violent crime in America. Since 1999, with Littleton, Colorado, over and over and over again in the last 20 years, we have watched teenagers walk onto a high school campus and blow away in cold blood, committing mass murder over and over and over again. I want you to know something has changed in the last 20 years. It didn't used to happen, and now it happens so many times, it hardly even makes the news before we go on to something else. And we continue to look for political solutions to spiritual problems. There's a spiritual problem. The spirit of Antichrist had been released on this land. I don't know if you're watching the news. You should really limit your intake, trust me. Like 30 minutes a day max. But just since COVID, did you know there is a spike in violent crime just since COVID? I'm talking a spike, all-time highs in American cities of shootings and homicides. Even Kansas City, man, we're on a track right now to break the record, all-time record of Kansas City. By the way, did you know that Kansas City is somewhere always in the top 10 list of violence per capita? Just this past week, just a few days ago, I read in North Carolina where a five-year-old little boy is riding his bike and his next-door neighbor shoots him at close range, point blank, in the head for no apparent reason. 
Jesus prophesied toward the end of time, the love of many would wax cold, meaning moral conscience of human beings would be gone. When you tell a generation over and over and over again, there is no God, or God isn't there, or God doesn't care, you teach him he's nothing more than a highly evolved animal, nothing more than a bag of flesh and bones and hormones, eventually what you get is the law of the jungle the strong preying on the weak, survival of the fittest. He says, tell them they're a bloody city, a violent city. Proverbs chapter six, verse 17, these six things does the Lord hate, yes, seven are an abomination to him, a proud look, a lying tongue, and number three on the list is hands that shed innocent blood. We are a nation that has shed the innocent blood of 60 million babies. Since 1973, 60 million times we have legally reached into a woman's womb and tore her baby apart limb from limb. God forgive us. God have mercy on us. A culture of death where life has less and less and less value. Human life in the image and likeness of God, do you understand what that is? That is in the face of God. That is Satan straight out of the pit of hell, getting in God's face, destroying the most innocent among us. He says this, not only are you a bloody city, but you are full of self-idolatry. What is self-idolatry? It's self-worship. Self-idolatry is self-deification. Self-idolatry is commonly known today as narcissism. That's what social scientists call it. And you can look up all the social science. I'm talking even secular scientists that are strictly data-driven, not emotional-driven. Even they are saying we are becoming a nation of narcissists. They call it narcissistic personality disorder. Anybody know somebody like that? Don't point. Put your hand down Don't pull before you point. Like. Uh, we, we are in this selfie society. We're becoming the ultimate society of self-idolatry. What is self-idolatry? Self-idolatry is all of a sudden where I'm more for my self-gratification than God's glorification. I am more about my self-deification than God's magnification. You see, what happens is God gets a demotion, we get a promotion. And that's what was going on in ancient Israel. Verse 4, you have become guilty by the blood which you have shed and have defiled yourself with the idols that you have made. He says, you have caused your days to draw near. I'm going to tell you, when you start living in idolatry, you're on borrowed time spiritually. What are the idols in your life? That stay-at-home order showed us a lot of our idols. Idleness will show you your idols. Porn use went up exponentially. Idleness will show you your idols. You've come to the end of your years. God is saying, hey, America, you better turn back or you've come to the end of your years. America, you're too young to die. Therefore, I have made you a reproach to the nations and a mockery to all countries. Those near and those far from you will mock you as infamous and full of tumult. Here is the ancient Israelites, though they knew the true and living God, the one known as Yahweh. They had turned to the false gods of Moab. They turned to the false gods of the Canaanites and the Jebusites. They turned to the false gods of the Ammonites. They were now worshiping Baal. Baal was known as the God of agriculture. He was the God of 
of the economy. He was the God of money. And when you worship Baal or the God of Molech, you would take your infant baby and you would put your infant baby on Molech's hands, his bronzen hands, and you would set a fire underneath those hands and you would literally roast your baby alive till he died to your false counterfeit God so he'd bring rain on your crops. We've sacrificed our children to our idols over and over and over again. We become a nation of idols. It's now become infanticide. What you see right there are legislatures on the floor of the New York State House celebrating, cheering, clapping, and hugging as they passed a law last year, a law that legalizes infanticide. Historically, if a baby survives a botched abortion, by law, a doctor has to try to save that baby and give that baby life-sustaining care and life-sustaining treatments, but no more in New York. If you have the misfortune of surviving a botched abortion, they will lay that little baby on a table and wait for that little baby to slowly die. People ask, oh, are, are we under judgment, Pastor Phil? Do you think God's judging our nation? Does one need a PhD in theology to answer some of these questions? Now, say, so well, why is this hard to fathom, hard to imagine? I'll tell you why. Because the American God is no longer the God of the Bible. See, the problem is that we become a nation of idols. What happened in ancient Israel is they were no longer one nation under God. They were now a God of a nation of many, many gods. What's going on in our nation? I hear preachers say, well, we're becoming a godless nation. No, we're not becoming a godless nation. We're becoming a nation of many gods. And we're the number one God. It's self-deification. We are our own little gods. I'll do what I want to do. I'm the captain of my own ship. Who's God or anybody else to tell me what to do? My life matters more than any of those around me. Galatians 6 and verse 7, be not deceived, God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that shall he also reap. And he that sows to the flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. He that sows to the spirit will reap life everlasting. It's the law of reaping and sowing. We have sowed the seeds of sin generation after generation. And there's a payday someday. Those seeds of sin are reaping a whirlwind. And it's hard to imagine, well, would God judge our nation? Would God judge little old hovable, luggable me? Really? See, it's hard for us to fathom as Americans because we don't have the God any longer of the Bible. We have created the God we want instead of believing the God who is. The, the biggest arrogance of modern man is that though we were created in his, his image and his likeness, we've created God in our image and our likeness. A God that's nothing more than our doting grandfather in the sky rocking on his rocking chair. Jesus is nothing more than my cosmic friend in the sky. And this lollipop theology is what we call New Testament Christianity. And we forget that our God is a consuming fire. Do you understand that for every one verse in the Bible on the love of God, there are seven verses in the Bible on the holiness of God? You see, we know about the love of God, but we have forgotten all about the holiness of God, that he is a holy, holy God. That means he's sinless and righteous. And because he's sinless and righteous, he must bring a penalty. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord 2,000 years ago. The sinless son of God came like the sons of men so that we could be forgiven of our sin and become like him. He wants to bring redemption, not ruin. But when we reject God's redemption, his salvation, all that's left is his judgment, his justice. 
He says, you're a material greedy. You're materially greedy. Not only are you full of self-idolatry, but you are materially greedy. The idolatry of money was alive in ancient Israel. Look, the princes of Israel, each one has used his power to shed blood in you. In you, they have made light of father and mother. And in your midst, they have oppressed the stranger. In you, they have mistreated the fatherless and the widows. In ancient Israel, God made a plan for those that were poor to take care of themselves. It was called gleaning. It was in the Levitical law, the law of Moses. And the harvesters that would go through the field at time of harvest, they were to lay and leave behind any of the seed that fell on the ground. They were to allow the poor to come behind and pick up that seed, and that would be how they would eat that winter. But they had no longer practiced that law of gleaning. They were now going behind themselves and picking up that seed. They were completely abusing the poor. They were misusing those in poverty. It had become a society of excess. Instead of generosity and giving freely, this God of Baal was a God of the economy. He was the God of agriculture. In the ancient world, your economy was driven by your crops and your flocks. And he was known as the bull. That's they would worship this brazen bull. And I don't think it's any coincidence at all. In fact, I think it's providence that right outside Wall Street of the New York Stock Exchange is a bronze bull where hundreds and hundreds of traders go into the New York Stock Exchange every single day. And as they file by this bull, they rub its nose for good luck. Two thousand eight, some of you don't remember, but I remember it well. A lot of you remember it well. Two thousand eight, the banking system was collapsing. The New York Stock Exchange was collapsing. Let me tell you how we got there. Our civic leaders, our governing leaders had struck a deal with Wall Street, giving Wall Street, the big lending agencies, the opportunity for great reward without any risk. And the greed of the American consumer took out loans that they could not afford, and the greed of the lending agencies made them give risky loans, jeopardizing their organizations. It was greed at the top, it was greed at the bottom. And in 2008, 3.1 million foreclosures in one year. 861,000 Americans lost their homes. For all that's changed, so much is the same. Look at what it says in verse 12. If you, in you they take bribes to shed blood, you take usury and increase. Usury is charging exorbitant interest rates. You have made profit from your neighbors by extortion and have forgotten me, says the Lord God. Full of greed, the idolatry of money, full of sexual depravity. They were full of sexual depravity. In Judeo-Christian moral view, sex is for marriage between a man and a woman. This is one of the unique character qualities of ancient Christianity. In a Judeo-Christian society, because of that Judeo-Christian moral view of sex and marriage, but in a Greco-Roman society, it's an anything-goes mentality. In a pagan culture, it's an anything-goes mentality. And they were now completely violating these boundaries that God had put in place for their health, for their joy, for their good. They'd become like the pagans around them. Look at what it says in verse 8. You have despised my holy thing and profaned my Sabbath. In you are men who slander to cause bloodshed. In you are those who eat on the mountains. In your midst, they commit lewdness. When it talks about eating on the mountains, this was an ancient pagan practice of having a love fest around the Ashtaroth poles. Ashtaroth was the goddess of fertility, the goddess of sexuality. And they would ascend up to the mountains 
where they would have a love feast and they would eat together and then they would act out the sexual acts of ritualistic prostitution and orgies. And this is what was happening in ancient Israel. In you, men uncover their father's nakedness. In you, they violate women who are set apart during their impurity. One commits abomination with his neighbor's wife. Another lewdly defiles his daughter-in-law. And another in you violates his sister, his father's daughter. An absolute anything goes mentality towards sexuality in ancient Israel. Do you understand? Hebrews 13 and verse 4 says, Marriage is honorable in all and the bed undefiled. Meaning sex to God is holy. It's not dirty for marriage, but outside of marriage, you're getting in God's face. Because it's a symbol of something sacred, the bridegroom, the bridegroom being Jesus and the the bride of Christ, the church. 1953, Hugh Hefner launched his Playboy empire. Today that industry has become a multi-billion, billion, 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 billion dollar industry in America and around the world. Oh, but this was tame in 1953 compared to what we have today. Why today you can go on Pornhub and you can make your own amateur porn video and you can post it on there for others to view. Perhaps if it's good enough, they'll even pay for it. I want you to see what was going on in ancient Israel is going on today. And friends, listen carefully. It's not just out there. It's in here. It's in here. As the church goes, so goes the nation. Politics don't shape the moral climate of a nation. Politics merely reflect the moral climate of the nation. It's the church that God put in the nation to shape the moral, spiritual climate of the nation. It's the church that is meant to build the wall and stand in the gap. It's that metaphorical wall of protection against the adversary, the unseen enemy, the spirit of antichrist. It's the church that's supposed to stand in the gap when there's a breach in that wall. But for far too long, the walls have fallen. The foundation is in erosion. 2015, the U.S. Supreme Court overturned 31 state marriage amendments that was meant to protect the sanctity of marriage, biblical marriage, in 31 states. And five judges overturned the will of millions and millions of Americans. Now, if you're gay or lesbian, I'm not against you. I promise I'm not against you. In fact, I'm for you. I'm not trying to take your rights away from you. But you need to know God hadn't changed his mind about what he says about marriage. And Jesus in John 19 verse 4 very clearly defined marriage as between a male and a female because it's holy to God. It's sacred to God. It draws a picture of the relationship that we have with God. And what this picture is, is a picture of a nation who's in the face of God. What do we do? Is there any hope? I'm convinced there is, but we first have to recognize where we are as a nation. The hope is found in 2 Chronicles 7 and verse 14. And if you look carefully at this graphic, you can see it's a picture of the United States, if you look carefully. But I want you to notice it's backward. I mean, when did Florida get on the West Coast? I mean, when did California get on the East Coast? And and Maine, well, it's in the Pacific Northwest now. You see, we're a backward nation. And the way we turn it around is not going from left to right or right to left. The way we turn it around is about up and down. It's about once again focusing and surrendering to the God of heaven that made us and created us and 2,000 years ago took on the form of a man so that he could become our sacrificial lamb. 
And he gives us the hope and he gives us the key right here in 2 Chronicles 7.14. We've called this a 714 weekend. And it says these words, if my people, everybody say, if my people. It doesn't say if the senators. It doesn't say if the judicial activists and the Supreme Court judges. It doesn't say any of that, does it? It says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sin, I will heal their land. And this is how we begin to build that wall of protection. We begin to stand in the gap on behalf of our nation. Building a wall is hard work. It's not gonna come cheap, and it doesn't come easy. But God has made a promise in some capacity, if my people, and there are people theologically that debate, well, is this verse for us? Because that was for the Old Testament Hebrews, and I understand once again that we're not a theocracy as a nation. We're not in a covenant relationship with God. We never have been, but we are his people. The body of Christ is his people. And he says, if my people, first of all, will humble themselves, it all begins with humility. Humility is when we recognize our desperation for him. We have no hope apart from him. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, it begins having a genuine prayer movement. There has never been a move of the Spirit of God without a move of the prayers of the people of God. If my people are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, and seek my face. Seeking the face of God means making him the priority and your pursuit and your number one passion. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear their prayer from heaven. I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. And that is what this weekend is about. Listen, 2 Chronicles 7.14, it doesn't only bring revival, it is revival. Meaning when you're doing these four things, you're praying revival upon yourself, a move of the Spirit of God, a supernatural move of God upon your life. If you want a supernatural move of God upon your heart, a supernatural move of God upon your home, this is how you do it. You see, these four things is what brings revival, and I'm convinced if you're doing these four things, you're in revival. First of all, he says, humble yourself. God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Pride says, I don't need God. Pride says, I can do this without God. Pride says, I can give God an hour and 15 minutes on Sunday sometimes, but God doesn't get all of my life. You see, pride says, I'm my own God, and when I get in trouble, I'll call real God. I mean, the big God, the big guy upstairs. But for the most part, I'm gonna be my own God, see? No, humility, true humility says, God, I am desperate for you. And I will promise the Spirit of God moves in the desperation of the people of God. We have not seen revival on our land, a true spirit, heaven sent revival in generations because the people of God have not been desperate for a move of God. Things have been just too darn good. I'm just telling you, everything is about to change. Apart from a move of God of biblical, historical proportions. Humility says, God, I'm desperate for you. We called this weekend because we're desperate for God. We are desperate for him. We have no hope apart from him. I hope you vote in this election. I really, really do. Do your due diligence and vote your Christian conscience, but I will promise you in the end, it does not matter who gets elected. If God doesn't move, we are toast. We're done. We're this close right now. We are $27 trillion in debt as a nation. And neither party's talking about that. It's called the collapse of nations. The judgment of God be upon us. Humble yourself, then pray. Begin to pray. And I don't mean that now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I die before I wake. Now, I don't mean that, I don't mean that kind of prayer. God is good. God is great. Let us thank him for this food. Amen. Dig in.
No, I, I, mean, I mean real prayer. I, I'm talking about intercession. I'm talking about spending time in prayer until you finally pray. I don't mean the two minutes and you look at your watch and it feels like two hours. I mean, I mean genuine petition, pleading God, pleading for a move of God. Do you understand that God moves upon the hungry? When you're hungry for a move of God, that's when God moves. The problem is we are so completely full on the things of this world. We're satisfied with just a crumb of God's presence. And God moves upon the hungry. He moves upon the holy. When the people of God pursue the holy, when the people of God are hungry spiritually, I will promise there's going to be a fresh move of the Spirit of God upon the people of God that have not been seen in generations. When you begin to hunger for the things of God, God, I'm hungry for you. I cannot live without you. Nothing else can satisfy the longing in my heart. If my people are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face. What's that mean to seek his face? It means to do it with urgency. It means to make him the number one priority. It's, it's not, you know, Jesus, I love you, but I love all this other stuff too. Here's the problem. We got too many lovers. We got way too many lovers in our life. Jesus is the one true lover of our soul. Do you understand? We've got way too many idols. We've got way too many lovers. We've got Jesus, and Jesus is cool too, but I've got this, and I've got this, and I've got this too. Here's the reality. It says in James chapter four and verse four, adulterers and adulterers, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore is the friend of the world is the enemy of God. 1 John 2, 15, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And all that is in the world, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but of the world. And the world is passing away. Do you know that everything you can hold in your hands, it will one day decay. It's going to fade away. But Jesus alone... is the only one that will ever love your soul and never fade away. It'll never decay. He says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear their prayer. I will forgive their sin. I will heal their land. And this is how we build a wall. This is how we stand in the gap. And even now, God says, I sought for a man. I sought for a woman among them that would build up a wall and stand in the gap before me for the land that I should not destroy it. No, I'm convinced God is willing to stay his hand. We are a nation that deserves the judgment of God. Ancient Israel finally did. We are a nation that is a bloody society full of self-idolatry, greedy for money, full of sexual depravity. Yet there is the blood of Calvary. And tonight we have some turning to do because all the sins out there, we embody them right here. Today is a day of confession, of introspection. And through confession, God brings redemption. Do you need revival in your marriage? Has your marriage almost died? Do you want the breath of God to breathe life? If you'll humble yourself, Pray, seek God's face, turn from your wicked ways. God will give life to your marriage. You want life upon your home, the breath of God, the breath of life. If my people are called by my name, will humble themselves, pray, seek my face, turn from their wicked ways. Do you want to see the breath of God, the breath of life upon the bride?
I'm talking the church of Jesus Christ all over this land, beginning with this church and all the other churches that name the name of Jesus and all those churches that have departed from the name of Jesus, wouldn't you love to see the bride awaken the sleeping beauty of our day? Wouldn't you love to see a Holy Spirit revival get a hold of the bride of Christ, the body of Christ, and it would arise in unmistakable, indescribable ways? It can happen. It can happen. But the reality is this, before God can heal our broken land, he's got to heal our broken lives. And the way you let God heal what is broken is when you humble yourself and pray, seek his face and turn. And I'm gonna ask you right now, to build a wall with me together, to stand in the gap and make up a wall. Right here at this altar is what we're gonna do. And I wanna spend some time on our knees and on our face before God, a time of personal confession, a time of personal petition for a move of God upon our life and upon our land. Let's do this together right now. You come quick, come quick. Jesus, we petition you that the Spirit of God would move powerfully and mightily beginning tonight and in the days ahead, that you transform our hearts, that you would break our hearts for what breaks the heart of God, that you would turn our heart back to you, that we would forsake every false God, every idol where we could have and should have turned to you. Give us clean hands, give us a pure heart. Just have a time right now of you and Jesus' personal confession. Any sin you know right now that you've harbored in your life, just let it go. Say, Jesus, will you forgive me? We claim the promise of 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Jesus, I pray that tonight you'd be healing, that you'd be setting people free. Church, when I read the book of Judges, there's a phrase in it over and over again. The people did evil in the sight of the Lord. The people did evil in the sight of the Lord, over and over again. The people did evil in the sight of the Lord. We live in a nation where the people have done evil over and over again in the sight of the Lord. 
and God would allow them to go into captivity. God would judge them at the hand of their enemies. And then it says this over and over again, the people began to cry out to God. The people began to cry out to God. The people of God began to cry out to God for God to deliver them. And I'm asking you right now to do that right now. Would you do this with me? Cry out to God. Say, God, would you deliver me? Jesus, will you deliver us? By the word of their testimony, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, let Jesus hear your voice right now. The people cry out to him. Jesus, you are the Alpha, the Omega, the first and the last. You are he that was dead, but you're alive forevermore. And you hold the keys of hell and death. Jesus, you said, if the Son shall set you free, you shall be free indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. Jesus, you're the one of Isaiah 61 and verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God has anointed me to preach good tidings to the meek, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound. Jesus, you are the resurrection and the life. And he that believeth in you, though he may die, yet shall he live. Would you be glorified in our life, magnified in this bride? Jesus, we thank you that you are full of mercy. Though you are infinitely holy, And you have redeemed us from sin's penalty. Now, Lord, help your bride to shine brightly. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's sing this together. There's a sound welling up from within me. Heaven's power calling hope to
people here at Blue Springs watching online, how many would honestly say, I want Jesus to set me free? There's an area of your life, seriously, that's held you in captivity, it's kept you from living what Jesus called life abundantly. It's that same old merry-go-round you've been on of inconsistency. How many of you want Jesus to set you free this weekend? Seriously. Amen. Listen, Jesus can do this. This is what he does. This is why he went to the cross. He took all of your sin, all of your shame, your every stain. He died in your place, but three days later he rose again. And he has broken the sting of sin. He has broken the chain of sin. He has broken the satanic deception, the distortion, so that you can see again to be free and sing. And right now I'm gonna lead you in a prayer. If you wanna pray with me, you can. If you don't want to, you don't have to. But this is how you walk out, 2 Chronicles 7, 14. It's how you do this, you humble yourself, you pray, you seek God's face, then you turn. Pray this with me. Jesus, I humble myself before you. I confess that I am desperate for you, that I cannot walk out the Christian life without you. I want to be free. Will you set me free? You said if the Son shall set me free, I shall be free indeed. And I believe you have all power and all authority to set me free from any captivity. Satan, I renounce your right over my life. I give all rights to the Lord Jesus Christ. You promised that if I humble myself and pray and seek your face, and turn from my wicked way, then you will hear my prayer from heaven. You will forgive my sin, and you will heal my life. And Jesus, I pray that this weekend, that healing would begin. Fear must bow at your name. Depression must bow at your name. Anxieties and insecurities must bow before your name. My every addiction, my every hang up, my hitches, my faults, my flaws, they bow at your name. I surrender all rights to you. In Jesus' name, give him glory. Would you praise him? singing about the great name of Jesus, okay? So lift your voice, you know this song. You give a life 
of all that we have for all that he is. And I'm convinced God could bring revival. I'm talking the real deal. I'm talking a move of God of historical, biblical proportions if he could get all of us all the time. This weekend, would you give him all of you? This is not a one and done. Revival never is. The work of God is never one and done. There's no magic sermon you're going to hear. There's no magic Bible study you're going to take. There's no magic Bible verse that you're going to quote. It's never one and done. It's the work of the Spirit of God begins tonight in you. And in the days ahead, as you repeat over and over again, Jesus, I surrender again. Tomorrow morning, Sunday night, Monday night, I'm convinced Monday night, if you let God, Monday night's going to be a special night. The work of the Spirit of God. Monday night, God's building towards something. He's moving the momentum of the Spirit of God in our lives. Would you be praying? Would you let God have all of you for all of Him this weekend and be here Monday night? Love you very, very much. See you in the morning. God bless you. God go with you.